Uh, summer in full force is just around the corner, and you will have opportunities to introduce yourself. Uh, you'll be at a dinner party, a barbecue, Christmas event, and you're going to meet someone. Hi, I'm Paul. And as the conversation begins, it doesn't take long for an exploratory question to be sent your way. So, tell me about yourself. How are you going to answer that question? How will you describe yourself? Who are you? What's your personal identity? Well, I am a white, Kiwi, straight, able-bodied Christian male from a middle-class background with a South African heritage on my mother's side, married with four adult children and one grandchild, has a master's degree in theology and works as a pastor of a Baptist church, living in a manse in Frimley, driving a Ford Focus, and I'm in my late 50s. Uh, my answer corresponds to 10 traditional identity markers. My race, ethnicity, nationality, my gender and sexuality, my physical and mental capacity, my religion, my cultural background, my family of origin, my close relationships, my occupation, my possessions, my age. Uh, all but one of those 10 markers has been around forever. Uh, every age and every culture has ways of communicating your identity. Now, traditionally, people have used external markers, objective factors, your genealogy, your whakapapa, uh, the history of your family, or, or things you've done or accomplishments you've achieved. But in our modern Western world, we are surely but steadily moving to using internal markers, subjective ideas to define who you are. You are no longer the product of your past or what other people have done for you or of even your own body, as we will see today. We are living in a do-it-yourself self age. You are a self-made self, which looks inward uh, to find out who you are, to form your identity. Uh, we live in an age in what's called, as I used that academic phrase for you last week, you can remember it, of course, expressive individualism, and you, what the heck does that mean? Individualism? You know what that is. We live in a Western culture. The individual's more important than the group. Your life is more important than what goes on. It's the one over the many. We understand that in our Western world. The expressive bit of individualism, it's a term that captures the next step. You can't just look at me as an individual and know who I am. I have to tell you. I have to express my identity to you so that you can know who I am as an individual. Now, I gave a list uh, last week, seven principles that, that, that all work together to capture the idea of where we are in our world at the moment. Uh, the, the essence of forming identity requires all these, these seven principles. Uh, the first one is the best way to find yourself is to look inward. And the highest goal of life is happiness. Uh, all moral judgments are merely expressions of feeling or personal preference. Forms of external authority are to be rejected. Uh, the world will improve dramatically as the scope of individual freedom grows. Everyone's quest for self-expression should be celebrated. And number seven, certain aspects of a person's identity, such as their gender, their ethnicity, or their sexuality, are of paramount importance. Now, as I said last week, 
uh, we get to the last one on that list because the six others are so prevalent and so powerfully at work in our own cultural ethos. As I said last week, it's not just a sort of few extremists who have these ideas forming their identity. These are the default ideas that shape the people you meet at the supermarket or at the petrol station. Uh, These are the unconscious patterns that mould people at your work or in your retirement village. Uh, These are the unconsidered concepts that rule in the classroom and on the sports field. Now, if our culture is an iceberg, we, we can see and feel the changes with regard to gender identity that have happened in recent years. Those things, if you like, are above the waterline. But the stuff below the waterline, the assumed and taken for granted stuff, the the deep ideas, actually they've been percolating away for decades, for centuries. I gave you ten traditional identity markers and I said one of them was relatively new. The one that's relatively new was, of course, I need to tell you my sexuality, my gender. Uh, People only started labelling someone as homosexual 150 years ago. The practice, the behaviour of homosexuality, that goes all the way back in human history. But using sexuality as an identity marker, this isn't just something that I do, no, this is somebody who I am. That's only happened in the last 100 years or so. And our culture has now extended that marker to include your gender. Now, of course, traditionally, historically, No one needed to specify their sexuality or their gender because it was obvious. Anyone who knew your biological sex knew the answer to the question. If I can see that you are a man, I know about your sexuality and I know your gender. If I can see you are a woman, then I know about your sexuality and your gender. Sexuality and gender weren't identity markers because they were obvious given your biological sex. They weren't even questions anyone was asking. But that's changed today. And what we have today is the the elevation of certain identity markers as being really important, while other traditional ones are brushed over. But it's a mistake to reduce anyone's identity to just one or two identity markers. You see, if I define myself by my job or my possessions, who am I if I lose my job or I retire. If there's a fire and all my possessions go up in smoke. If your identity is wrapped up in your marriage and your children, who are you when your children leave home and you become a widow? People are much more complicated than just one or two identity markers. What can I really know about someone who just tells me their gender and their sexuality? Aren't I left to just to draw stereotypical conclusions? I don't. Who wants to be defined by a stereotype? And yet we find ourselves living in a cultural moment when people are introducing themselves by their gender and their sexuality. They are telling others what pronouns to use when referring to them. And strangely, the, the volume of the messaging seems out of all proportion to the number of people involved. A recent statistics New Zealand survey said there are less than 20,000 transgender people over 18 years. That's less than half a percent of the population. And yet, 
the volume of the messaging seems so much louder than that. There's something going on in our society that is more than just one of many small minority groups getting some visibility and some compassion. Now, this is an issue that, that touches some of us personally, through our own family and to relatives. It's an issue that's powerfully at work in our high schools and education system. Ask the teenagers what this is like at school, which is why we're taking a few Sundays away from our normal pattern of working through the Bible to think through these pressing topics. How should we respond as Christians to to issues of sexuality and gender in public discussions or, or personal interactions? What does God say? to our world and our time. What what, what is the good news that we have to tell those around us? Now, as I said last week, let me lay some few preliminaries. I am no expert on these matters. Uh, I've done some reading, uh, some watching, some listening, and I'm trying to draw some of this material to serve you with that, that might make us start thinking better and having more conversations. Uh, if you want a book for this week, uh, Nancy Percy, uh, Love Thy Body, very helpful this week. Uh, secondly, issues of sexual identity and uh, gender identity are matters of pain and confusion for those who are directly impacted. Uh, gender dysphoria, uh, feelings of discomfort and dislocation about m- your own identity, uh, they can be traumatic and disheartening. So so let our first response be one of compassion and uh, genuine concern. And thirdly, while our culture has raised these issues, we're not primarily concerned with answers for people out there, whoever they may be. Our particular focus is on our own hearts and minds, our own attitudes, uh, responding to the, the cultural imprint that we find shaping our own thinking and our own living. See, we want to once again bring God's word, God's truth to bear on our own lives so that we won't be pressed into the mould of this world, but we'll be transformed by the gospel. So if we are to understand our cultural moment, to understand what's playing out in the news and politics, what we're seeing in our movies, what we're hearing in our music, we'll need to look below the waterline of the cultural iceberg to see some of the ideas that are powerfully shaping our world. And we looked last week in terms of identity and where that's found going on the inside, internalizing. That's where you'll find who you are. This week, we want to look at the corresponding thing that goes with that. It's not on the outside. The outside is to be dismissed. And in particular, uh, over the recent centuries, philosopher by philosopher, we've seen the demise and the denigration of the human body. 1700s, one significant step was arriving at the conclusion that the real me is on the inside. I am my thoughts. I am my emotions. I am my desires. In the 1800s, we have the, the complementary step. The human body is not me. The human body is, according to Darwin's evolutionary theories, a, a random product of time plus chance plus matter. It's a biological machine. And if the natural world is just random, then it's neither good nor bad. There's no morality to be connected with the natural world. It just is. 
You can't look at the animal kingdom and go, it ought to be, it just is. And because the human body is part of nature, we start to treat the the human body in the same way. And we have this philosophical separation. Me as a thinking, feeling, moral person away from my body, the biological machine, the clump of matter that I live in. Now, that's a one-minute condensing of some very long books that I read. And so it will be incomplete. But the cultural key understanding, the real me is the psychological me on the inside. My body is not me. Now, it all sounds very theoretical. Let me show how these ideas play out in our world today. Let's just start off very simple. How about our culture's approach to dieting and fitness? Hang on. Aren't dieting and fitness about exalting and rejoicing in the human body? How it's an example? How's that an example of despising your body? Well, here's the simple question. Who's happy with their body? Oh, yes, some people are responding to medical advice, lose weight, get a healthy heart through exercise. But most people on a diet are going or going to a gym are doing so for aesthetic reasons, how it makes them look and feel. Aren't many of the people dieting and going to gyms fundamentally unhappy with their body? Botox, plastic surgery and all that. Isn't that for people whose bodies don't look and perform like they want? If only I could make my body look like I want it to, then people will see the real me, the me that's trapped inside. How about a more serious example? You see the split, the separation between biology and psychology in abortion. The argument used to be that abortion was okay because it was just removing a blob of tissue, a collection of cells, a potential life. And so pro-life arguments focused on proving that a fetus is a human life from conception. But that isn't persuasive anymore because the situation today is framed in different categories. Uh, Most advocates for abortion will now acknowledge that there is a human body growing in the womb from conception. But that doesn't mean that the baby is a person. Remember, the real me is the inner me, with thoughts and feelings, the real me is psychological me. So to to be a person, the baby in the womb, has to earn the status of personhood by achieving a certain level of cognitive functioning, the capacity for consciousness, to be self-aware, autonomous and so on. And so the logic goes, abortion terminates a human being, but not a person. I've got a little grandchild. All the pictures are this little sleepy baby doesn't look particularly autonomous, self-aware or anything. And you can see that it's not hard to extend what was not a person in the womb still isn't a person outside of the womb. Infanticide coming to us how near us soon. And you may well feel the contradiction and the confusion in that argument for abortion. What do you mean a human being but not a person? but that is the reasoning at work today. Or we move to the other end of life. Same logic applies in euthanasia. The human body has little value. The real me is psychological me. Uh, Euthanasia is being accepted by many uh, because they have 
come to believe that the value of their lives depends on their ability to exercise their autonomy, their control. Top reasons for wanting euthanasia are losing autonomy and being less engaged in activities. Only a minority of people are worried about debilitating pain. Many are fearful of the impending loss of self, abilities, quality of life, being a burden to people. People are terrified that one day they may have to require help from someone else. And there are contemporary philosophers who who think it appropriate to move toward involuntary euthanasia. Australian, Peter Singer, professor of bioethics, Princeton University, insists that the severely mentally incapacitated are candidates for euthanasia because they were once persons but are no longer. See, our culture has accepted a profound separation between the human body and being a person. And when it comes to sexuality, oh, we see the same division at work. The real me is psychological me. The body isn't me. So it doesn't really matter what I do with my body. And so we live in a culture of casual sex, hooking up, friends with benefits. can all be organised via a dating app on your phone, Tinder, Bumble, Hinge. Meet a cute stranger, have sex, never see them again. Sex is a separate category to a personal relationship, a marriage, a family. Sex is an exchange of physical services between disconnected individuals. Now, part of what makes that approach to sex possible, plausible, is that underlying idea that the human body is not valued or significant. And then we take another step. You see, to engage in same-sex behaviour is implicitly to say, why should my body inform my psychological identity? Why should my body have anything to say about what I do sexually? The assumption is that the body gives me no clue to my identity. It gives me no guidance to what sexual choices should be made. Our body is irrelevant or insignificant. Which brings us to the pressing issue of today, transgenderism. I hope you see that in one sense, the transgender movement is, is just one more step along the line of implications of devaluing the human body, of separating biology and psychology. See, if the human body is ignored when it comes to choosing a sexual partner in a same-sex relationship, then we shouldn't be surprised if my human body is ignored when I decide my own sexuality. Now, we can see the disconnect between the human body and the inner person in the arguments supporting transgenderism, but, but we should see that the roots of those arguments have been with us and at work in our culture for a very long time. We might even find some of those dismissive ideas and thinking about the human body in our own heads. The question raised by the transgender movement is very fundamental. Do we accept or reject our basic biological identity as male or female? Now, culture is hurtling down a path that says the body is irrelevant or 
even a constraint to overcome, a limitation to be liberated from. By contrast, the Bible has a very positive view of the human body. Your body, my body, everyone's body. It says that our the biological correspondence between male and female is part of God's original design and creation. It says sexual differentiation is part of what God pronounced as very good. There is a purpose to the physical structures of our bodies that we are called to respect. There is a God-given harmony to be found between our biological identity and our gender identity. Or to be sure, there are a small percentage of the population who tragically experience gender dysphoria, a painful disconnect between their mind and their body in terms of their gender identity. But there's more going on in our culture than that. There's this whole kind of political edge to the transgender movement that that we'll touch on more next week. You know, there's legal pressure being brought to bear in Western democracies. New laws are in the pipeline, even in Wellington, as we speak. And there are manipulative word games being played with phrases like a person's sex assigned to them at birth, as though we're sort of mentally to picture a doctor going, hmm, what gender, what sex shall I write on the certificate? Hmm, I don't know. Oh, well, I'll assign as though we ignore the scientific fact of there is the baby and you can see its anatomy and decide its gender. Uh, It's a language game. Uh, There are word games that seek to distort reality. Uh, That's what uh, author J.K. Rowling, author of all the Harry Potter books, uh, she got into trouble. Uh, She responded to an article that talked about people who menstruate. And her response was, People who menstruate. I'm sure there used to be a word for those people. Someone help me out. Wumbund, Wimpund, Woomud. Uh, she got pummeled in the Twitterverse for insisting that it is a woman who menstruates. There are word games being played. Word games being played uh, with names like homophobe or transphobe. Uh, These are terms that are just simply used to shut down any questioning, any discussion. Uh, It's just irrational bigotry. There's no conversation to be had. There are word games being played with pronouns. Now, I haven't had any personal experience here, so please correct me later. But it seems to me that specifying the pronouns is about controlling how other people speak about you when you aren't there. See, if you're in the room... I'm using your name or I'm referring to you as you. Would you like a cup of coffee? I only need the pronouns when I talk about you to someone else. Now, if someone tells me their name and says, call me this, well, I take it as good manners to use their name and work hard to pronounce it properly. I'd like to do that for anyone. As I said, there's a political edge to the transgender movement that is pressing in on us, but we'll come to that next week. Now, the transgender script tells young people that embracing their cross-gender feelings will liberate them to be their authentic selves. 
but will it? Uh, Many who have tried say no. Uh, One person went down this road, they described it this way. They, They said they immersed themselves in queer theory. And queer theory says never define a person according to their body. So to discover whether you identify as a man, you must first define manhood. And if we are not men by our bodies, we are men by our actions. Do you act stereotypically masculine? Then you're a man. Do you behave in ways that are stereotypically feminine? You must be a woman. And the observation this person makes is, ironically, queer theory actually reinforces rigid gender stereotypes. By contrast, if you take your identity from your body, you can engage in a range of diverse behaviours without threatening the security of your identity as a man or a woman. When we are defined by our bodies, the whole width of human experience remains open. As this person says, there is freedom in the body. Well, one of the things we want to do this morning is engage with the Bible and think about at least one aspect of these complex issues from God's perspective. Which brings us to our reading from uh, 1 Corinthians. Uh, The Apostle Paul is writing to Christians who have come out of a culture that, that gives little thought to sexual morality. Not unlike our day, the argument was being made, oh, look, I have the right to do anything. It doesn't really matter. And satisfying sexual desires, look, that's as natural as satisfying a hungry stomach with food. How does the apostle respond? Does he scold them as Christians are often caricatured by saying, oh, sex is evil and naughty and no, to be avoided at all costs? Does he belittle the body and say, don't, no, don't, don't worry about what, what happens with your body. All that matters is your spirit. No. What he does is argue how important your body is. Uh, firstly, verse 13, he says, your body has a God-given purpose. Your body is not an accident or something insignificant. Your body is you, and you serve the Lord through your body. Uh, Secondly, verse 14, bodies are very important. So important that just like Jesus was raised to life with a resurrection body on Easter Sunday, one day everyone, the dead, the living, everyone will be raised to life just like him. Uh, Your eternal future is not as a spirit sitting on a cloud playing a harp, Your future is in a resurrection body fit for eternity. Thirdly, verse 15, Christian, your whole self belongs to Christ and is connected to him, even your body right now. Paul doesn't denigrate the human body. He, He elevates the human body. His rationale for sexual morality is that your body has the dignity of being a member of the body of Christ. And fourth, verse 19 Your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. The temple was the sacred place where where people went to meet with God. This passage says that your body, you, you are a place where people will meet with God. And other believers' bodies are where you will see God. See, the good news about Jesus is good news for your whole person, mind, spirit, emotions, and your body. You are the total package, and the gospel of the Lord Jesus, his rescue plan for you is, is for all of you, 
mind, spirit, emotions, and your body. The New Testament is very affirming of the body. Now, we're going to have to, uh, uh, as Christians, as we look across the Bible, also learn to think more carefully about what it means to be a man or a woman. See, the transgender movement raises a question about what is a man or what is a woman apart from biology. See, the Bible affirms uh, being a, a male and a female in terms of biology, but, but is there a corresponding biblical difference between men and women socially, psychologically, emotionally? Uh, for the last 50 years, feminism has been uh, hard at work in our Western culture, working to make women equal to men in our society. And I would say there's been a corresponding effort to eliminate differences between women and men inside the church. Egalitarianism has been a powerful force in the Western church. But are we now left saying that there's no significance, no meaning to the word gender apart from biology? See, does the Bible give men and women different roles and responsibilities and relationships? Uh, questions about the human body, questions about gender in our society. These questions are going to require Christians to go back to the Bible and think hard so that we have credible answers for ourselves and we have compassionate answers for troubled people. Uh, what I've tried to do this morning is show you that uh, what seems novel and new is actually just another step Along a, in a long line of steps. Our culture is largely dismissive of the human body, but in the coming of Jesus, through his incarnation that we remember at Christmas, we have no greater validation of the human body. God became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And it wasn't a temporary arrangement. Through the resurrection that we remember at Easter, Jesus now has a resurrection body for all eternity. We could not have a greater affirmation of the eternal goodness of the human body. Uh, we live in a world where some people feel alienated from their identities as men or women and are seeking a solution to that in self-display or in surgery or uh, bodies filled with other sex hormones. But in a fallen universe, all of us are alienated in some way from who we were designed to be. And that alienation manifests itself in different ways in different people. In other words, we know what it is to be less than what we want to be. Surely that makes us empathetic, compassionate. But we have more to offer than that. Because through Jesus, we know what it is to have our world reordered, to experience now substantial, if not complete, healing and restoration. We wait for complete. We'll make progress with substantial healing and restoration. We know what it is to be given a new identity, to know who you are as a child of God. We know what it is to find our place and our purpose in this world. 
And we know what it is to have a promise of a future where all of who we are, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, socially, and physically, is integrated and whole. Let's pray. Father, we want to give you thanks that in your great wisdom, you've given us bodies. And we want to say thank you. We want to recognize the goodness of the world you've made and all you've entrusted to us. We live in a world where, the, where there is confusion. Help us to be clear in our own hearts and minds. Help us to be gracious and generous. Help us to hold out the good news of a Jesus who for all eternity lives in a resurrection body. Amen.